and welcome to another Dishcast. Another a month, September. I'm looking out at the beautiful bay in Provincetown. I can't leave this place yet because it's too beautiful right now. And to match this beautiful afternoon, I'm talking to Antonio Garcia Martinez, one of the more interesting and innovative, and I think surprising voices in our discourse. His Substack is called The Pull Request. He's worked across many technology companies, so he's actually had some real-life experience in the world, broader corporate world we're now living in, especially the startup world. And I'm delighted to have him join us. Thank you, Antonio, for coming. Thank you for having me, Andrew. I'm a longtime fan, so I'm totally fanboying here in quiet, oh, uh, in, in silence, by the way. Please. Um, I want to ask you what we always start out with asking, because we have a lot of ground. Tell us a little bit about where you were born, where you grew up, what your influences were, how you were brought up, your parents, and what you wanted to do when you were a kid. Yeah, sure. So I, I was brought up by you know Cuban exiles who fled the Cuban Revolution in the early 60s when the revolution turned hardcore Soviet. And my parents, as many Cuban kids did, came alone and unaccompanied. They were relatively older, but there was tens of thousands of Cuban kids who came alone, their parents basically putting them on flights out in a panic. And, uh, you know, they lived the American dream, did college in the Midwest, moved out West. I was actually born in California. But then when Miami became kind of a hub for the Cuban diaspora, I was raised there. And, you know, Miami is kind of this weird American suburban copy of pre-revolutionary Cuba with all the same characters and institutions. So I ended up going to a, a Jesuit high school that Fidel Castro actually went to called Belen Jesuit that the Jesuits had opened after they got booted from the island as they did. And uh, there, you know, I was raised in the bosom of the Cuban exile, which was um, an interesting, weird place. It's not until I moved to the United States, no curious use of the phrase, to the, for college, that I really realized that Miami in the 80s and 90s was not a normal upbringing. <laughs> in many ways. But, you know, I don't know my aspirations. I think I wanted to be a naval pilot. I did apply to the Naval Academy. I, you know, my first job, actually, my first actual paycheck was actually in journalism. People often ask me, how did I go from, you know, a science PhD program to finance to tech? I, I actually started scribbling for a living initially. And I've eventually Well, it's obviously a talent. I mean, you uh, write, think, you write incredibly well and easily, I think. It's a uh... You've, you've come back well, to your From you, that's a tremendous, well, from you, Andrew, who has, I think, one of the finest pro styles on Substack or in the discourse, I, that's high praise. Um, you know, my mother was a librarian and I was always raised surrounded by books. And, you know, the thought that, you know, the thought that human life would continue and have it not result in a book seemed like a waste somehow. So I knew somehow a book was going to come out of this eventually, although it wasn't quite as planned. Yeah. And what was the Jesuit influence on you, do you think? You know, that's interesting because now that religion is a little bit more part of my life, I'm in a Jewish conversion process. I'm looking at Christianity a little bit more, and my knowledge of Christianity comes from that Jesuit upbringing. You know, the Jesuits, for those who aren't familiar, they're, I mean, well, I mean, Andrew, you're much more of a hardcore Catholic than I am. Maybe you'd like to define the unique role they play in the bigger Catholic firmament. Well, I, do, I wouldn't want to but, do that either, but you were educated by them. I wasn't. <laughs> uh, okay, and I, I, yeah, uh, in general... I mean, I, yeah. In general, the idea is that they are among the more intellectual and questioning of groups and that their mission is, is primarily education, at least that's a core goal of theirs, and missionary work. But in my experience and with my life, and all my favorite Catholics tend to be Jesuits, a lot of the intellectuals that I'm interested in have been Jesuits. The Holy Father, of course, right now is a member of that order, the Society of Jesus. But... It seems to me with a, a mother's librarian, a Jesuit education, you're going to be 
you're going to have a real education there in, 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 in thought, in religion, in philosophy. And is, did that happen or was it more basic than that? I think so. Yeah. I mean, like, like you said, the Jesuits are big into education. I, I, one, one last thing I know, the Jesuits are unique in that they have, they're the only order that has a fourth vow, which is allegiance to the Pope, which is why originally they were sent out on these dangerous missions on Asia and the rest of it. One of my, when I visited Go, I had to visit the, the grave of St. Francis Xavier, who was an early Jesuit from the original band. But you're right that right now they're definitely education focused. And yeah, I remember a whole year of logic and philosophy in high school. As just standard, you you had to you had to do that. A lot of biblical scholarship. I mean, my original reading of the Hebrew Bible was actually with with the Jesuits. And yeah, I think that, yeah, certainly compared to what what passes for education these days, I think it's what would what used to be just called an education, and now would be called a classical education. I guess. What was interesting though is that the Cuban diaspora in Miami maintained a slightly, well, somewhat delusional belief that they were going to go back at some point, right? That they came kind of begrudgingly to the U.S., the Marines would invade, communism would go away, and everything would be restored. And of course, they maintained this for decades, and, you know, I think they've given up the illusion, but the school was a properly bicultural, bilingual school in which you had the entire, what would have been an entire Cuban high school, Latin American upbringing, you know, reading the Latin American, or, the, you know, all of Spanish letters, in addition to an American Jesuit inflected education. And so I think one of the interesting, one of the interesting multiple personality things that I think I have that I've, that was born then is being this kind of seeing the U.S. from this kind of weird displaced Cubans. I, I'm actually a Spanish citizen, Cuban. My grandparents were Spanish immigrants to Cuba back when it was worth immigrating to, which seems like a joke now, but used to be the case before communism. And so seeing the world when this very split personality, I think has definitely marked me going on. And I think, I don't know, you see, you see resonances of it even now for, you know, so for example, as you mentioned, I worked in tech for many years. And I think I was one of the few people who was dumb enough to leave tech for media and writing, wrote a memoir about it, did that for a few years, went back to tech, and now I'm back to writing. And this business of like spanning two worlds, I think is something that comes very natural to people in Miami and keep in Miami, who are sort of these minority middlemen who straddle worlds almost as a job. Yeah, and that's a fascinating position to be in, a sort of third culture kid, as it yeah. were. I mean, I feel yeah. relatively similar as an immigrant from another country. I brought up in a completely different culture, come here and have to learn it in a way from scratch and see its, its strangeness that is often harder to see when it's close to your own original culture, which is definitely true with England. But Catholicism obviously didn't take with you. Were you, were you practicing Catholic back then? Or, and how long did it take? for you to leave it. It obviously yeah, didn't take, well, a, take a lot. <laughs> you know, Cubans aren't hugely Catholic. They're sort of, I forget there's a term for it, the, you know, the sort of Catholics that only come in for weddings and whatnot. I mean, I, you'd have to go to mass and stuff, but, you know, I, I wouldn't say I was deeply devout in any way. I mean, we can get into the whole, why am I a Christian apostate question if you want to. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going in the other direction. Because, Most because okay, it's yeah, a fascinating right. discourse because I, I want to talk a little bit about Christianity too, because I think, one of the things sure. you've noticed is how Christianity, and you're a big fan of Tom Holland, Christianity is actually a very pervasive force in America, even though the vast majority of people really would deny that they have a Christian faith. Is Tell me what led you to, to sort of move away from Christianity. What is the core part of it that, that I mean, led so you to disavow it and to move to something very different? Well, not very different, but part right. of the same family, Judaism. Sure. I mean, as a brief footnote, I'll insert that, you know, I also have Jewish kids. So there's a few other factors going on aside from that. But just to address, I think, what is the most interesting, the juicy part of the question, which is what you're getting at, which is why reject it. I'll come clean, Andrew, possibly for the first time. You know, I'm not one of these 
woke culture warriors. Like I, you know, I leave that in better hands, such as yours or someone who can more take on, I think the stress would drive me crazy. But I, one thing that we discussed in that interview with Tom Holland on the pull request was how wokeness is a, obviously a heretical form. I mean, you, you, one of your early pieces is probably the most initial and brilliant take on this, but obviously this is a great awakening. This is a very Protestant style revivalist movement that takes as many heresies in the past did takes one set of Christian beliefs and then just blows it out of all proportion, forgetting a lot of the other tempering beliefs. You know, this, from the Catholic perspective, a lot of wokeness is Marcionism. It's Marcionite in that it sort of forgets everything of the Old Testament and the God of wrath of the past for the sort of very hippy-dippy message, to, to give it a somewhat reductionist term, in the Gospels. And I think thinking about it more, I, there's aspects of Christianity that are extraordinarily radical and I think extraordinarily dangerous, right? And I think one of now looking at it from a Judaic perspective, right? A lot of Christianity is like a blown up popularized form of Judaism, but there's, I think there's uniquenesses in Christianity, things that have been, were either new or so blown up, they're no longer like the, the Jewish analog. One of those is like the, that, the sort of moral inversion that Rene Girard focuses on so much, right? The thought of elevating the victim, the oppressed into a divinity figure. It's the, you know, it really is a moral inversion. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And that's, again, we're so used to that that it's hard for us to pull out of it. But that's an incredibly radical statement. I mean, no culture in history has really ever done that to that extent. Every culture always worshiped the beautiful, the wealthy, the powerful. The, the thought of seeing literally God embodied in an alleged criminal broken on the cross in the most humiliating form possible is an incredibly subversive thought. And I think if you take that too far, I mean, yeah, you get wokeness, right? which I think is corrosive for many reasons. And it's hard to stop once it's gotten out of control. Not to turn this into the cultural talk that I didn't want to talk turn it into, no, but, but as a personal answer to your question. Yeah. Well, let's, I mean, I understand exactly what you're saying, and it's really, it's Nietzsche's core, original point. Yes, yes. He just Correct. could not wrap himself around this slave morality, this notion that the least right. are, in fact, the greatest. But in fact, of course, Christianity doesn't really quite say that. I mean, I would suggest. It, it, it says that the point of that argument is that our worldly system of hierarchies is immaterial. That, that God has a system of belief, creates all of us absolutely equally. And that in our suffering, in our brokenness, that is when we are most likely to turn to God. That is when we are most reminded of our fundamental equality with other human beings. That we're, we're, we're reduced to humility in suffering and to contemplation of what really matters. In other words, suffering is not good in and of itself, but, it's, but it can lead to a better understanding of how much God loves us, how weak and broken we are, and how we need God to bring us back to life. So I'm not sure that's a celebration of total inversion of it, it because it, it would be a total inversion if it had only this world, if it were not redeemed in the next, if we did not understand that all these things will pass away, and that we will see the true worth. But in a broken world, to use an Augustinian argument, that's not going to happen. It shouldn't happen. The political temptation is foolish. It's one thing that Jesus resisted quite strongly, even to the very end. And the, what this is really a reminder of our fundamental human equality. Now, I agree with you. That's an incredibly powerful and new idea. The universalism of it and the notion that in suffering, we can actually come closer to God. And in suffering, there's a kind of dignity and nobility. But why isn't that so simply profound? Because it's true, is it not? 
it, it is. I think you're putting your finger on lots of things. The other thing, of course, the Christian universalism is also somewhat unique. I mean, Judaism is a little bit mixed on the globalism versus particularism, even to this day. And but Christianity really says, no, this is this universally applies to every human on earth, which, again, no societies really have have. Well, Islam would concur with that, would it not? I mean, Islam would, would, would uh, probably, yeah. Well, an, another one of the proselytizing monotheisms, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yes, but it um, is a universalist monotheism. I mean, it believes it's combined the best of Christianity and Judaism. It is kind of the summation yes. of both of them. But it definitely is universalist. I mean, you you can read like I mean, I've always been struck by Malcolm X's autobiography about how that universalism got really lit him up. And I have to say that one of the joys of being has always been for me the Catholicity of the American uh, Catholic Church. It's extraordinary diversity of wealth, poverty, racial, gender, all of it. Although it's obviously, like most religions, more female than male in, in its attendance, it's still a Catholic small C experience. And that, I mean, I think growing up in England, maybe the idea that really struck me was the idea that God would pick a church of England why why England? <laughs> this little this tiny little island off the north of Europe and, and somehow God is blessed this particular landmass? That seemed to me utterly absurd. And the universal church seemed to be a much more clear idea, which is why, by the way, I think Catholicism is a great resistor to the notion of American exceptionalism as well. No country is favored by God, in my view. It's an absurd thing. So you yeah. don't like the suffering <laughs> and you don't like the I don't emphasis. Like the suffering. And you don't like the emphasis on the inversion of the social order. You don't like the proselytism. Yeah. Right? I, I think th there's two aspects of Christianity that I find somewhat objectionable. One huh? is the obsessiveness of the victimhood, which in some sense transcends much of the moral thinking around law and order. There's, you know, there, in Judaism, there's 613 mitzvot, which are considered sort of the sacraments that are described. And two of them that actually co-appear, one is do not show any favor to a wealthy man at trial, and also do not show any favor to the poor man at trial either. Right, the thought to, the thought of, of judgment and law and order is absolute in the Jewish case. Uh, in other words, provide fairness to all, but that means you know scrupulous fairness to all. The other thing that I think is unique about Judaism that that is an extension of, or sorry, of Christianity that is an extension of Judaism is the millenarian messianic uh, vibe to it. I mean, it was originally a messianic cult of Judaism, right? And there. You said something very interesting in what you said, right, which is where you think Christianity maybe goes astray isn't that the kingdom of God must be realized on earth rather than in the afterlife, which is a sort of shift that's happened throughout Christianity's history. In, in early Christianity, the early Christians thought it was happening in their lifetimes. Of course, it didn't. And that got kind of pushed back. You know, the bill on utopia is somewhat easier to pay when it's in the afterlife than it's when it's on this earth. But I think if you look at, at, at world history in the 18th and 19th century, when, you know, God died as described by Nietzsche, that's when you started seeing a lot of these millenarian projects that that eventually became the social progressive movement around abolitionism, suffragism, Marxism, even ethno-nationalism as, as we know it today. A lot of these movements to perfect reality came out of a time when God sort of died, but that that religious urge was still there. Um, yes. And I, the last comment on that, last comment on that is one big, again, I'm, I'm approaching it now from the Jewish perspective. One big difference between Christianity and Judaism is that Christianity is very otherworldly, right? It, it speaks of some state of perfection, whether it be a future world where there's racism has been banished or the future kingdom of God or whatever, but it's always trying to balance an ugly reality to some idealized state of holy perfection. And I think Judaism is very different. It's very worldly. It, 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 is, it doesn't speak in terms of perfections. It speaks of your practice in the here and now. The afterlife is almost talked about not at all. And there's a very easy mixing between you know, the animal spirits of greed, militarism, violence, business, all that gets commented on by the sages, all of it, literally in every, in, in the most sordid detail, it all gets discussed in the most open way, in a way that you just could not imagine in the Christian world. 
But the notion that we should affect utopia on Earth, this, which I agree with you, it, it has its roots in Christian millenarianism and Christian eschatology, the notion that we are leading to the second coming of Jesus. However, there's also deep within Christianity, let me push back a little bit, and this is true in Augustine more than sort of anywhere else, that the very fact that we are broken means that our ability ourselves to construct that utopia is fundamentally flawed. And you see this in, in, in a work like Thomas More's Utopia in, in the early 16th century. You see the notion of our brokenness being a way in which politics cannot actually transform the world. Only faith can. Only the intervention of the divine can. And that will also be always compromised by the fact that we are fallen, that we are incapable of being the creatures we are destined to be and are on our mode of being. Now, so I agree with you, absolutely, that some elements of Christianity were taken on, especially the eschatology, especially this proselytism, especially the need to enforce it on others as a way to save their souls, not just their bodies and minds. I agree with you. But I'm not so sure that Christianity hasn't at some point resisted that formally, has actually opposed that formally. I mean, Christianity was a key part of the resistance to communism and was in some parts, not in all, to our eternal shame, but in some parts to, to fascism. So presumably you think Christianity has some role to play still in the West, or do you think it's lost? Oh, yeah. And to be clear, I mean, obviously that mentality of perfecting the world has been an enormous success in many ways, right? If you look at our current notion of human rights, I mean, as, as often starry-eyed and unrealistic as it is, the UN Human Rights Charter, I think, is this momentous document to think that everyone on the earth should have these. I think it's a little naive, too, sometimes, but that, I think, is obviously the fruit of centuries of Christian civilization. And so, yeah, no, I, look, it's hard to ding Christianity when I'm living in a Christian, <laughs> we're all living in a Christian world, and we're no longer living in some barbaric pagan world with human but sacrifices. But as, you, or as the right point now. you often make, we're living in a Christian world that somehow doesn't have faith in God which is a particularly weird space to be in. And one of the points you've made, which, is, which I think is worth talking about, is that can Christianity persist when the, let's say, the enchantment of the, the Middle Ages or the enchantment of the pre-scientific world has dissipated and continues to dissipate? Is there anything left of enchantment? Now, I would argue that there is that in fact humans today seek mysteries, seek transcendence, seek all sorts of ways in which to believe that they're not merely mortal beings. And that that, whether it be even things like astrology, even the, the making a cross when you're about to land in a plane, these little moments when you realize, oh, in real extremists, we want there to be a God. They want, we kind of yearn for there to be something beyond this. The question is how you translate that into praxis. And Catholicism, I think, has that. It, it does say the sacraments matter. It does say rituals matter. It does say prayer matters. It also says that the natural world is an integral part of our understanding of God. In other words, there is a potential space there for Christianity to revive itself. Is There would not be, for example, in a, a sort of re reversion to 19th century historical literalism, but would be some kind of somewhat mystical, ritualistic, orthopraxic version of Christianity. But you don't seem to think that's possible with, with Christianity, or maybe you do. I, well, I totally agree with the focus on orthopraxy. For those who aren't familiar with that word, it, it simply means the difference. 
that's that's the problem discussing, say, Judaism or even Christianity within a Christian mold, because everything we think about religion, we almost synonymously equate with uh, the, the Christianity we're exposed to, which in the U.S., unfortunately, is often evangelical Christianity, which is nothing against it, but it is one form of Christianity, often very much at odds with the, the, the Catholicism from which we both sprang. But orthopraxy is different in that it's it requires less faith. It's less talking about Jesus saving you. Okay, put it that way, right? There's things to do, and there's a community to be part of, and there's a morality that molds your behavior, and that is part of what being a Christian means, less than feeling that Christ touches your life every morning, right? At least that's my interpretation of it. And, yes. it, and I think if there's a knob for, yeah, and, and if there's a knob for orthopraxy, then Judaism cranks it up even more and, and makes faith, I mean, there's no Messiah to, to speak of, right? And so, I, it, which I think is when it, I, I realized, I, I, this was also a very utilitarian. I, we're framing that's like a very deep philosophical spiritual crisis, uh, Andrew, which I appreciate. But a, a lot of it was also very practical in that I wanted my children to grow up with some religious tradition. I felt I think we're in this weird place in American society where the only functioning organizations we see are corporations. Right? Everything else is either kind of half-assed or incompetent or just non-existent. The sort of overlapping sort of spheres of association that say Tocqueville diagnosed an, as being uniquely American, that an American was many things, right? He was a member of a labor union. He was a member of his family. He was a member of a community. He was a member of religion. That's kind of gone. You're wearing, and, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody, if not more, you're wearing a little corporate logoed hoodie and that is your identity. And that, that's how I've lived my life for the past 10 or 15 years. And I got to the point where like, this is ridiculous. I'm, I can't invest my life's purpose in being a foot soldier for Facebook, even though I, I did do that for years. And so... But then it comes a question of, okay, now we're shopping in the salad bar of religion. What can someone with my disposition, which is somewhat scientifically and very materialist <laughs> inclined, accept? And it's hard for me to believe that Jesus Christ, you know, Jesus Christ died for my sins. I, it's hard for me to believe that Jesus is touching my life some way. I just, I can't force myself to do that. And in Judaism, again, the orthopraxy is cranked up. It's about practice. And there's even a, a, one school of Judaism called Reconstructionist Judaism, which I'm not part of, to be clear, but just as an example, kind of openly says, well, we're not even sure if God exists. Like, it, did God really give Moses the tablets at Sinai? It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, this is our text. And if we, almost like the U.S. Constitution or democracy, if we all collectively believe in it, it kind of becomes true. It becomes a shared narrative and shared values. And it doesn't matter whether God actually actively acts in the world or not. And and I'm like, okay, that's me. I, that level of skepticism and kind of engagement with the cultural tradition, not to mention, again, it goes back to my bookishness and my mother, the librarian, you know, Jews like sit there and study texts for fun. That is considered part of what being a Jew is. It's like, okay, sign me up for that. This I can do. Of course, I, I remember, I recall Pascal's interesting point, which was that when he was trying to, in the Pensee, the apologetic, apologetics for, for Christianity. And at one point, he just, this is a very controversial point he made. He said, well, just go to church, go through the motions, take the sacraments, act as if you believe, and you will be able to turn yourself into a believer by practice. That, of course, is very different than the evangelical notion that you have one moment in which uh, revelation appears to you. And of course, Pascal had that one moment. He had that extraordinary spiritual experience where he saw the reality of the divine and that's but he was trying to talk to people who hadn't had that experience and the gospels themselves just the stories the, the things that jesus says they do have resonance and, and you said that the, the christian that jesus had no effect on your life but you also say that christianity has profoundly affected all of us so he did right <laughs> i mean whether he did yeah or whether paul did it is is a good i was question. about to say saint paul i think yeah, I think St. Paul is really the one behind the scenes here who also had his own experience that made him see the true light. He was really the guy who, to use the tech 
term, he would be the growth marketer <laughs> who made who turned Christianity into something that could become the Facebook of religion. Um, well, but yeah, he made it. He made Jesus a religion, yeah, which Jesus right. wasn't. He was. It was the way he acted in the world, more than a set of doctrines. And it were these aphorisms, these parables, these simple things, and always about doing rather than believing. It seems to me. In other words, I I think Christianity has more of that orthopraxis in it than than you seem to believe, and it's certainly from a Catholic point of view. I can see from an evangelical point of view, there's this notion that you're saved and it's all done, essentially, but that's not uh, Catholicism. So tell me about Judaism then. So you're, you married you, you, you married into Judaism. Is that what you're saying? And you want your kids? I made I don't it into want Judaism. Personally. <laughs> no, I don't care. I mean, and some of it's in, the, in my memoir. Yeah, no, I have three Jewish kids from two, two different mothers, and one is sort of weekly observant. And the other one, you know, despite being the descendant of, of Holocaust survivors, really, really wasn't into the Jewish life thing. But I've my 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 dastardly plan. I realized that my child's practice will be the average of zero in my practice, I think. And so I'm trying to crank my side up such that they arrive at a modicum of it. And uh, but that's kind of what opened the door, I think. Do you think that and you've said this, that progressivism is really at this point, so it, it's sort of fueled by the exhausted fumes of Christianity. Yep. It has the sense that the world is so broken, it is absolutely urgent that every single one of us fix it now and that it can be made perfect. And that the solution is very simple. Tell me more about that. Does that mean that it might be hard to export? It certainly seems to, from the point of view of the Chinese and the Russians to be absurd. I mean, they are making jokes about the American, this American tendency. But in the West, in general, it seems to be spreading. Tell me how you, why you think that is happening. Yeah, that's a question I've asked myself. I mean, there was this piece by Tyler Cohen that you probably saw in Bloomberg about whether spreading, preaching the gospel of wokeness is a good or a bad thing. I tend to disagree with him, in, in that, although I agree with him in every other thing. And by the way, I thought his podcast interview was very good a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be hard to export, right? Because Again, Christian universalism, universalism is one thing, but Anglo-Saxon racial politics are another, right? So to, to take one example, just near and dear to my heart, again, I, I tend to not to jump into these cultural war phrase because I just don't think I have the constitution to deal with it. But one thing that just blew me up completely is this term, I, I still don't know how to pronounce it because it's unpronounceable in Spanish, Latinx or Latinx or however you pronounce this thing, right? Which 90, a Pew Research study says that 96% of Hispanics either don't even know what it means or don't want to use it. Right, because of course it's ridiculous. Like, you can't even be pronounced in the Spanish and the, the language of the culture purports to represent. It's it's a ridiculous term. That's obviously a top-down elite progressive white thing. That I'm not even sure what it's supposed to get at. But clearly, it's 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 almost. Well, so I think what it's supposed to get that, at, as I understand it, is that to say Latino would be exclude women. To say Latina would exclude men. And on top of that, it's important that we abolish all gender binaries in our actual language and grammar. Because for some reason, the fact that they apply to 99.7% of humanity, it means that they are oppressing the 0.3% of humanity for whom that is not applicable and therefore have to be abolished entirely. Right? That's the well, argument. You're going to have to, you're, you're, you're going to have a long <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're gonna have a long way to go in Spanish if you're gonna be if you're gonna be neutralizing literally every noun because the entire language is built around gender. I'm not quite yes, sure how you manage to fix Spanish. Just as, just as just as Latin is, it's one of the first things you learn. In fact, in English, right. you have one of the you know one of the least gendered languages actually, but in which we don't have the, the the word the can can refer to anyone. But this is not enough. That messianic fanaticism. The, the, the slightest deviation must be purged 
or you are complicit in evil. That's a particular strain of Christianity. It's a particular strain of Puritanism, a particular strain of American in intolerance, which is weird for a country that that preaches toleration in part of in its constitution and in, 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 in its laws. But I think it's connected, personally. I think the fact that we in America didn't have an established religion at all meant that religion was bottom-up, essentially, and was competing with each other and also competing in virtue. And therefore, the most pathological attempts to create that virtue were often seen as absolutely uh, justifiable, even if they trod over people's rights, even if they destroyed human beings, even if they were based on moral panics. I mean, from Salem through the Hollywood blacklist, through the Lavender Scare, through the childcare panic in the 1990s, if you can remember that, and now through the fact that every single thing we do is laden with white supremacy, not just racism, but white supremacy. This is surely, this is, I mean, I would call it an obvious perversion of the Christian impulse. Where is it different than Christianity? Well, you know, like you said, I mean, we've lost belief in God, but we still think lots of devils are still around, <laughs> apparently. Yeah. And, you know, this level of Puritanism reminds me of that line from Burroughs, you know, nice church-going ladies with pinched, me mean, bitter faces, right? It's this sort of church lady holiness that's, I think, very unique to Protestant, American Protestantism. So I think it, it, it differs in a lot of things. Obviously, the, the notion of forgiveness, the notion, what Rod Dreher said in my interview, which is, you know, the Christ is, the Christ figure is in some sense, elevating the victim, but it's also an accusation. We all kind of crucified Christ, and we're all in some sense that Roman centurion, right? And that that insertion of us in the sort of not starring role in the Christ narrative is something that often gets lost. We, one thing I'll let, one last thing I'll address, I'll back up to what I earlier said when I was making fun of uh, Latinx or Latinx or whatever. I think certain aspects of it are hard, going to be hard to export, but much as I'm sure you've traveled probably in Latin America or other parts of the Catholic world, Catholicism, you know, as the term implies, is universal. And it has, you know, there's a catechism for the entire globe, but it's in, in its specific manifestations can often vary widely. If you go to the Socalo in Mexico City, you'll see a very Latin American form of Catholicism that differs from the Vatican and certainly differs from the church in Bavaria. And so while I think, you know, Latinx is not going to get a lot of traction, I suspect, in the wider world, I think that, that those same abstract patterns of thinking will be applied to whatever the sort of oppressed dialectic is in whatever country it gets exported to. And so I can yes, see some you, form you of it a... coming up in continental Europe. Go ahead, sir. But you made a, a, a really fascinating point with echoing Rod, which is that the Christian response is that we are all fallen. We all have original sin. Right. We cannot distinguish. We're neither, right. we're neither male nor female, uh, slave nor free, Jew or Gentile, but one in Christ Jesus. But wokeness actually says that, that depending upon the racial category you're in, you, you are not guilty. In fact, you are innocent and will be definitionally innocent by virtue of your place in the oppression hierarchy. And so it, it, it actually, although it seems to be claiming universalism, it's very American specific. It seems to believe that all human problems really emerged in America, in the new world, and that racism, for example, was invented here, or that slavery was invented here, or that these things that have been around for millennia didn't. There's a kind of uh, you you had a phrase in one of your uh, podcasts, I think you said, uh, some kind of the parochialism of, of American right. wokeness. The, the fact that, the, that we might think of racial diversity, including, for example, Asian Americans, but suddenly for some reason, poof, they've, they've vanished. They're not oppressed 
at all, even though they are a minority. All the exceptions become simply contorted into proof that they're right. So Asian Americans cannot possibly have thrived in America because of anything but white support or white toleration or because they act like whites. So that's a difference. Right? Yet they're 40 percent. Yet they're 40 percent of the workforce of Google and have done very well in this country. Right. Yeah. Now, that's the, again, uh, let me go to Google for a second, because there we had the famous Demore firing. We had and we have what by any means, by any other standard would look like an extraordinarily diverse workforce. I mean, white people as such are a clear minority at Google at this point, right? Am I right about that? Uh, Somewhere no, near no, they're, they're still a majority, they're just, but, 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 they're under, but they're underrepresented. It's less than the population as a right, whole. Right, 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 right. But they're still a majority. Yeah. So, yeah, I know. It's weird. Like, I've, I've spent my entire life in tech, and like, the number of times I've been in a room and I'm the only one who speaks English without an accent, or mostly without an accent, is, you know, uncountable. Even though in theory, I am the like diversity TM candidate, supposedly in the picture, uh, even though I'm surrounded by people who have been in this country literally like a handful of years. It's a very, it's a very odd notion of diversity that, again, looks at it in what I think is a very parochial perspective, but and is willing to either upgrade or downgrade it? you. Yeah. If we think of, if we think yeah, of yeah. our current politics as a battle between you know, what uh, David Goodhart called the somewheres and the nowheres. You have the right. tech industry that's really being built by the nowheres, by people. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I'm a nowhere in a way because I'm not in the country I was born in. I'm not in the class I was born into. I am I'm a, a, a transatlantic person. But I mean, people who, the, the people constructing the most powerful parts of our economy now tend to be uh, cosmop extremely cosmopolitan. I mean, we're talking about people who barely have, were never born in this country, do not even speak English. And that is the norm across a lot of the tech industry. We've really taken the cream of so many other countries' high-tech students and turned them into Americans in order to turn this country into the powerhouse digitally that it is. And that, do you think that's probably exacerbating yeah, I mean, some of these tensions that we have? Maybe. I, I would say that, you know, it's... It's almost become a hobby of everyone to identify their favorite political horseshoe. And by horseshoe, I mean the extremes of some continuum in which they actually meet in a counterintuitive way. I think, you know, the usual arc that's been defined by left and right that dates back to the French Revolution, the French Parliament, right, is kind of a very dated one. And I think other dimensions like universalism slash cosmopolitanism versus localism slash nationalism is actually often a more predictive or interesting dimension. And the fact that you see, you know, people on the far right who are sort of anti-tech in some sense, be because it is a universal phenomenon that you're describing. Or it, it, put it another way, I think if you look at the global phenomenon around Brexit, Boris Johnson, Trump, Bolsonaro, right? Like rather than left versus right, one of universalism versus nationalism would actually be the correct way to gauge that. And yeah, I think that's one of the underlying tensions in our current discourse. And funny, I'll mention, I have a budding theory that for every mainstream problem, there's like a Jewish version of the same problem, <laughs> that if you actually dip into the Jewish literature, you'll find it. And of course, Judaism has actually struggled with universalism versus particularism for a real long time, because of course, the, there's this whole chosen people riff in the Bible. And how do you sort of reconcile being supposedly chosen people light into the nations with living in a multicultural open borders world in which Jews thrive and do very well. And in fact, if anything, are accused of driving the universalist agenda, Soros, etc. Right. So I, I don't know. It's tough to reconcile. I find myself mixed about it. On the, as you said, I'm obviously the product of this completely people from nowhere thing. And yet, on the other hand, I was raised in the Reagan 80s by fiercely patriotic Cuban exile parents who, you know, waved lots of American flags. I, yeah, I, I don't I, I have trouble reconciling it myself. Do you think humans can live 
as universalists? I mean, aren't we all actually characterologically local? We attach ourselves to things we're familiar with. We grow up in particular environments. We, our attachments tend to be to our local teams or to our families or to our counties. And, and if you're lucky, you get an, an, an identification with the nation as this sort of stopgap in the late 19th century that continued into the 20th. That this is our core tribal identity is the nation. But obviously that is under extreme threat from mass migration, from multiculturalism, from a notion of a nation that's bound together by nothing but a creed as opposed to anything substantive. I, I, do you think that's sustainable? Yeah. Yeah. Is that sustainable? Andrew, you're bringing out the radical in me. I'll, I'll come at it. Well, so... I think you put I'm your trying to. On it, I'm trying to. Which it's is, a deliberate strategy. I want. I want you to <laughs> no, think sure this through with me. This is. This is what makes you a good interviewer. Um, <laughs> I think you put your finger on it, which is, yeah. I mean, the notion of nationalism was kind of an 18th, 19th century thing. Before that, well, we we didn't have nation states. We had sort of feudal and dynastic orders, right? The thought that we would actually have a piece of land with a fixed border that surrounded a, a, a common cultural entity is actually a, a relatively re recent phenomenon, right? And it, obviously it's a major force. And, and before that you had more things like tribal identity, right? But identity has always been the driving force of politics in whatever form that you wanna call it. I, I think that the creedal nationhood of the United States, right? Is, and again, I, I have both e US and EU citizenship. So I've, I've, as always, I have a foot in both worlds. But I think the creedal nation of the United States is in many ways morally and politically superior to the blood and soil nationalism of Europe, right? The fact that anybody can be American as long as you swear allegiance to this document. There used to be the, the post office in this little town I used to go to in Washington that in the post office, they literally had, it almost looked like a synagogue. They had the docu the founding documents of the United States, the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, just sitting there just to be observed, almost as like a holy relic in the Catholic Church. That feeling of civic nationhood is what makes the, you know, the sort of subsuming of your own personal national identity to a greater one possible. And if you don't, if you're not willing to uphold that, again, I'm sounding very Jewish here, but if, if you're not willing to uphold the faith around the sacredness of those documents and how they apply to everyone within it, I think you lose it and you end up degenerating into the tribal identity of the past, which I would I would almost call a form of paganism and, and frankly, a suboptimal way of doing things in the American way. Well, that is precisely the point of the woke revolution, to take those documents and to shred them, to annihilate that understanding of America, because they believe that understanding of America is a disguise for the reality, which is the persecution of the non-white by the white. That's what the 1619 Project is, to burn those documents in some way, to destroy their legacy and their hold. And my concern is, once you do that, once you have taught an entire generation of sculpture that actually these sacred documents are evil, that they're lies, that we have to dismantle it all, how on earth does a, a single society, a single country endure? It's a real risk. I mean, I hate to be the end is nigh apocalypticist, but yeah, it's bad news for the United States. I mean, that document is what holds this country together, a, a 23 page or whatever it is document. Without that, we have nothing. And, and a shared story. Identity, I think, and a shared, a shared story. story. I, I think Americans, Americans have, you know, don't have a lot of experience of, you know, tribal identity is not such a great thing. Right? It usually plays out in horrifying forms and it makes things like genocides and persecutions possible. And, you know, again, it's a very dangerous box to be opening, I think. And that to me, you know, the e pluribus unum, as, as naive as it might sound out of many one that is the modern United States, is America's exceptional magic and worth, very much worth preserving. It's also true, however, even though I'm with you, that the creedal idea is morally superior to the rather disparaging called blood and soil, which is a sort of rather 
I don't know, Prussian idea of nationhood. We could have a slightly more English or mild version of it, which is that we're a people that have been in an island for a very long time. We've developed our own traditions slowly. We have our own culture and, you know, proud capital city. And in the last 20 years, we've decided that we're going to be cool Britannia, that anybody can be British, that, that as we sound out, 40% of Londoners were not born in the United Kingdom, which is an extraordinary shift for a country like that. I think it's, I think it's destabilizing for countries. And I think one of the things that, that, that is different now, apart from the assault on the very basis of the Constitution and its, its mythic truths, is the dramatic increase in multiracial and multicultural diversity in America in the last 50 years. I mean, it was far easier to assimilate Eastern Europeans or Southern Europeans. When you're dealing with Asians, Africans, when you're dealing with South America, you're dealing with, we're dealing with really cultures that, are, that might be a little harder to digest and to assimilate and to bring into a common national story. And that's another challenge. We both have an attack on the foundations philosophically of our country, but we also have, we don't have sort of ethnic homogeneity. I'm glad we don't, but we don't have those things that keep people together, that keep people understanding they're in the same project. In some ways, I think you can look at all of our politics right now and, and see the fundamental problem is that we are not a single country. We are two countries at war with each other. And under those conditions, our constitution cannot function and isn't functioning. It, we can't, I mean, look at our immigration crisis. The immigration crisis is, 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 is due to both parties, but we're, we've been unable to pass a law about this since 1986, a, a serious comprehensive law that could actually resolve the situation. And neither party can even do what they want to do. The party of the, the right cannot build the wall. The party of the left can't quite let everybody in who wants to come in, which is sort of what part of them actually really believe in. And so you end up with this hideous sight of what's happening on the border in Del Rio, in Texas, with the Haitian migrants. Am I, I mean, you and I being very apocalyptic here and depressed about America, I see the wheels coming <laughs> off. I mean, I do. And I'm alarmed by the fanaticism with which people are dismantling the wheels. Well, let me strike a slightly positive note as a counter argument to your 40% of London is foreign born thing. You know, the two most prosperous and probably mo most important states in the United States, Texas and California, have been white minority states for a very long time. And, you know, they haven't imploded as economies or as societies. I think the United States is much more able to soak up. I, I don't think Europe is capable of becoming a multicultural nation like the United States. They just never will. I mean, if whites were a minority in Germany or, or France, you would see the far right being even more active than it already is. It's already at the fringes of potentially veering into real power. It would, have, it would be sweep into power if tomorrow Germany were like California or Texas. I know lots of Americans think Europeans are terribly tolerant and wet and open. They haven't actually spent a lot of time there. <laughs> most, Europeans, most Europeans could not deal with the sort of everyday thing that you see in California that nobody even raises an eyebrow at, right? And yeah. so I, I think the US is going to be a lot more able to deal with that. But to, again, to strike the negative note, it's odd that precisely at the moment when we most need the sort of cohesive national unity that says, look, you can come from, from wherever, but if you swear allegiance to these documents, you're cool, you're in. Instead of cranking that up, which we did, right? This, these notions of civic nationhood went through the roof when the US had its largest immigration at the beginning of the 20th century, right? All the flag waving, the Bellamy salute, all this very over, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance, all that was due to, in fact, an influx of non-Americans coming in. They, I think, reacted to that functionally by creating this syncretic nationhood. And right now we're actually breaking down the syncretic nationhood when most we need it. So I think it's very dangerous. And, and obviously, as regards the bipartisanship, 
politics is one of those things that I'll, I'll swear I'll never post on because A, I don't know that I, I have anything unique to add. And, and aside from the fact that I'm going to catch endless flack online, but, but I agree with you that it's just, I, but the thing is that it's dysfunctional at the federal level, right? Because, and that's not that unusual. If you look at the history of the United States, many of our biggest political conflicts have been one faction seizing the instruments of federal power to impose its interpretation of the constitution on the other side, right? And then when that, while that's happening, using state government to defend yourself against it. So California, for example, declaring sanctuary cities in which you basically say, we're not gonna follow federal immigration law, we're not gonna cooperate with federal immigration law. Or you have Texas saying, we're basically gonna ban abortion, even though that's, that's not what the Supreme Court decided. And so this tension between one side using the federal government to quash the other, and then defensively using the states has been the story of this country for a very long time. And I think if you look at the local and state government, you'll find a lot more sanity. So up, up until very recently, I was living in a small rural community, not very different probably than Cape Cod and Provincetown in the Northwest. And there, local politics was pretty sane. You know, it was almost like a Greek polis. A regular guy would run, he'd get elected, he'd take a public charge, he'd do his best. He was accountable and then he retired back to regular life like Cincinnatus or something. It was like, well, this actually kind of works out. And so at the state and the local level, I think the level of pathology you see is less, which of course argues for more federalism in the sense that we take more power away from the federal government potentially. Yeah, and of course the other thing that's, and I agree with you on all those things, and I agree with you about California and Texas being hopeful examples of California's bifurcation really into the college educated and the non-college educated is among the most acute in the country. In some ways, it typifies a kind of an impasse between the two factions within California, although one faction is permanently in power, the Democrats in that coalition, and seem firmly ensconced in that power. Where was I going with that? Um, yeah, and the, but the trouble, here's, here's, what I, here's what I was going with, it, is that social media and its extraordinary explosion in the last 10 years, 15 years, tends to nationalize things more than, and even internationalize things in a way that would never have been the case before. The fact that I saw, for example, Black Lives Matter's protests formed in Paris or in London, when it's obviously, an ex I mean, it is a terrible example of a very particular American trajectory of slavery segregation, and, and, and which those countries, for good or better, never experienced and haven't had to ha actually have to test. Is social media, I mean, obviously is another solvent against pragmatic compromise with people because it's so much better to... I think of it the way that when you have a condo meeting where you're all sitting around having to talk to one another, and then when you have an email list in your condo meeting or a community board where people just go absolutely nuts and bring in all sorts of issues because they don't really need to be there and look at people and construct some kind of solution. That's what we've, we've added that to the whole country, which has helped made us go absolutely bonkers along with, obviously, a candidate and president who was sort of the archetypal tweeter in, in Trump. What do you make of Trump? Yeah, I think I would, I see him as sort of a symptom of a bigger problem. I don't, mm -hmm. everyone ascribed to him as evil antichrist figure. I see him as a, a symptom of decades and decades of, you know, what Lash described in the revolt of the elites, of a sort of uh, negligence on the part of elites to steward societies, to some overall happiness. And what you get in that is a populist revolt, very similar to what Martin Gurry described in his, I see him almost, Martin Gurry almost as a bookend to the revolt of the elites, while there's a revolt of the public, guess what, 30 years later with social media. And I think where you're putting your finger on, it's something that kind of obsesses me, which is we're probably both roughly the same age. Andrew, you're probably a little bit older than me, but we're part of that bridge generation that saw the world go from mostly analog to mostly digital, right? Which is, you know, we. I assume you got lots of letters when you were in college. I still have letters from my parents. And the thought that like information traveled only as fast as physical objects did was still kind of operative in the younger part of our lives. And as suddenly that's just no longer the case anymore. And I think decoupling 
someone's information diet, like their mental virtualization of things, right? Humans have this odd thing where I read letters that say T-I-G-E-R and I get scared and panic as if a tiger's in front of me. It's a very strange human emotion, right? But the fact that my virtual world is fundamentally different than my physical world and that now we've just cranked that up to 11 by making it such that your entire world can be virtualized and uncoupled from geographic distance is really strange, right? Because again, getting back to your condo association meeting or if, you know, whatever your province, town, city council meeting thing is or whatever, that's a very personal, direct, I'm personally invested. I've got to see you in the grocery line the next day. <laughs> There's only so much I can get away with. And now the world, you know, the circles you and I move, I mean, this is a clear example. We're 3000 miles away from each other. And yet you, I, we would probably both say that we're kind of roughly in the same cohort or the same world somehow. And yet I'm in one square on the map called California. You're on one square on the map called Massachusetts with potentially very different political systems and ways of doing things. So I just, I don't know how to resolve that conflict between the colored squares on the map that have defined human life since ancient times to the new virtual, you know, sort of bubbles that are totally decoupled. And yet, you know, un until the singularity happens and we're all just literally running on hard drives, we're still physical beings, the garbage needs to be taken out, law and order, et cetera. How do we resolve our virtual lives, which are untethered from geography to political entities that are completely tethered to geography? And I'm raising that just as a last, you know, Yeah, it's almost, it's almost impossible to travel anymore, by which I mean, you can't go to a place where you know nobody and know nothing and have no results. You have to actually right. go to ground and ask people, find people, do the usual human intelligence stuff, whereas you just bring your own world with you. You can go wherever you want. And essentially, you log onto your computer and you could be anywhere on the planet and be just as involved. I think of Glenn Greenwald sitting in Rio de Janeiro, and it's not as if he doesn't, he doesn't feel as if he's right here, probably more here than, we, than he should be, but he's absolutely right here. I remember... And for me, it was going back and forth to England in my adult life. Uh, when I left, it was this, and one of the symbols was the only way I would find out what's going on in England was by going uh, to Harvard Square and looking at the papers that would come eventually three days into the kiosk where you would start reading them on the stands. Right. And when I would then have to, when I wrote a column for the Sunday Times, Chatterbeat England, it was a huge issue how I could translate what was happening there here to there because i knew the conventions were utterly different even the terms were different and over the years of course i was one of the first to jump into this digital pool it just became clear that the audience is the same now it wasn't before the, right. the and it's like going from washington to london back and forth over the years suddenly at some point in the early 2000s it felt like it was going to the same city really it was the same cosmopolitan city, the same Starbucks, the same people working in the same kind of industries, the same multiculturalism that was existing. And it was utterly different than the England of the London that I grew up in, say, in the 70s, where it was so English in so many ways that you couldn't, you really couldn't express. And you couldn't hear a single English accent in a couple of weeks in London in the service industry at all. That's a very profound change. I bring up my brother's comment about it because I don't want to demonize him or anything, but 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 when he said, well, he talked about London, he said, well, it's not our capital city anymore. And I was like, well, you know, in some ways you're right. It isn't. And so why would you not expect the people utterly shut out, not to scream and wail? But do you think the elites have learned anything from Trump? Have they have they even begun to understand that some of the things 
that were expressed through Trump are real? I mean, I think of immigration as a key no. question. Yeah. No. no. I think initially there was an interest in sort of the J.D. Vance, he'll be the elegy, or I don't know if you follow Chris Arnaud, who would like sit at McDonald's in the heartland and people like scratching their heads and are willing to confer a little bit of patience and like, hey, wh what is it with these people? And now it's just, no, it, this is just completely illegitimate. And it is this menace to be, to be combated. They, they learn nothing, yeah. I mean, we know it just as an empirical fact, like take your normative angle out of this altogether. We just know that mass migration tends to provoke populist outbreaks. It's certainly more so in Europe than in the US, but in the US, given the scale of it, we're at a historic peak of immigration and anxiety in the middle of the country is clearly real. Some of it is imaginary. Some of it is racist. Some of it is just pure old conservatism in a small sense of like, I like the way it is. Why do we have to overhaul it this massively? And yet the position of the Democratic Party is we make absolutely no concessions whatever on restraining immigration. We actually offer an invite to anybody coming in and anybody who complains about this is obviously a white supremacist. That's where they are. That's where Biden is. That's why we're in this insane situation. Right, right. I mean, being a liberal progressive now requires keeping two very contradictory things in your head at all times. One, the U.S. is a horrible white supremacist, racist disaster of a country, and we must let in everybody who's clamoring to enter this presumably racist, horrible country. And the weird thing is that, like, the immigration policy doesn't even let everybody in. Actually, I was just side note interviewing somebody for a, a job early this morning, and I was the person was in in Europe because he had visa issues in the United States and was basically forced to leave. And every American multinational has offices in like London and Vancouver. A major reason for that is the failure of the American immigration system that makes it such that educated people that are willing to work for American companies cannot come in. And it's just bizarre that on the one hand, we're willing to allow uh, this border crisis situation that we've got going on, but it's like, how about we just do a point system like Canada and Australia? Or how about, guess what? Everyone who does a graduate degree at an American you know, university just gets to stay and work. How about we just do that? Right? Well, that, that, would be irrational, that would be a rational policy. I mean, <laughs> as it is, in yes. the last year, just in the last year, we have admitted one and a half million people to the United States through the southern border who, that, for which there is absolutely no mechanism to deport them back. They have court cases, they have assignments and court dates, which are now years in the future. It's effectively open borders, unless you want to do it all legit and you want to really do it the right way, in which case it can take you forever. That's the situation we've right. constructed. And it's a situation that we are so tribalized, we can't even begin to fix it. They, they can't get anything done on this. They can't get anything passed. That's how bad it is. You know, it Andrew, this is Christian universalism run amok. No, I'm joking. That was slightly, that was a slightly <laughs> well, ironic statement. Well, you're partly right. You're partly right. I mean, there is an element of that. I mean, and, and what's fascinating is the Catholic Church, of course, has been this extraordinary powerful force for the legitimacy of mass migration anywhere, anytime, anyplace. It's hard to find in Pope Francis's statements any view of that immigration could be restricted in any way into Europe. And and uh, yes, so you're right. Wokeism and, and Nessus clearly slips into universalism when it comes to a question like immigration. This um, is the point that I made to, to Rod that like in his book, Live Not By Lies, you know, it's, it's a lot about wokeness and it's a lot about the Christians living under communism in Europe. And um, often, you know, those viewpoints, although they seem at each other's necks, and as you cited, the Catholics were often major factors in resistance against communism. It's it's various flavors of the same sort of, of some of the underlying beliefs, such as the universalism that you're citing. 
right? Where they sort of if you read see, that, I if you ever read that hideous racist novel by the the Frenchman, um, I'm spacing on the name. It's about this the Got giant this ship. Yes, uh, something of yeah, the saints, yeah. camp of the saints. I think it's called. Yeah. The Catholic Church yeah. is the absolute enemy. To that. And I think one of the other interesting points I saw in one of the conversations you had is to say that 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 essentially that the communism, in even in some senses, has some Christian eschatology in it. It has Christian universalism in it. It has a worship of the poor against the wealthy. And so it has some Christian themes, especially eschatological. Same with socialism in some way, same with Christian democracy, same with liberalism. The one ideology that is firmly anti-Christian is fascism. Is that something that would make it hard for fascism to take root in the United States? I mean, I, I see fascism as the sort of last pagan revolt against Christianity. The Nazis, arguably among the least Christianized historically people in Europe, you know, with elements of Wagner and all the rest of it, and Nietzsche, even though Nietzsche himself was not a was not an anti-Semite, you know, were just revolting against the Christian message of sympathy for the weak and saying, no, actually, we're going to embrace the very anti-Christian uh, virtues of the past. And yeah, I do think for all the talk of fascism, and look, authoritarianism can happen anywhere. My parents fled an authoritarian dictatorship, but I don't see fascism in the European mold taking off in the United States because it's literally the, almost the most Christian country in the West. That that, that sort of pagan revolt uh, against Christianity, I do not. I, I I could see it taking hold in Europe again, to be honest. But I don't I see can it do. taking hold. I, I I absolutely can. If things like I said, if things got to where they are in Texas and Germany, uh, there, there would be a Nazi party again, with, without any doubt in my mind. And but I, I don't see that in the United States. Although, in Trump, Trump, what was fascinating about Trump is that if you could, if you thought of what paganism really is, which is a contempt for those Christian values, a contempt for weakness, and a, a great ease with the notion of superiority genetically over other people, other races, a, a propensity for cruelty as a means of sustaining power, a contempt for the New Testament and a worship of the old. I mean, my favorite part of Trump's Christianity, when he was once asked at one of these hideous prayer breakfasts, like, what's your favorite, what's your favorite chatter in the, in, in the Gospels? And he said, well, an eye for an eye. <laughs> well, you do understand. Not the Gospels. <laughs> not, that, that is not the Gospels. Uh, but, but of course, they all applauded him because these sort of Christians, I call them Christianists, really, it, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. It was entirely cultural, political movement, not connected with any of the core principles of Christianity, which would require evangelical Protestants to be the most pro-immigration of, of, of factions, but they are the least. But that's simply a fusion of politics and religion and a strange kind of religion, although it's increasingly clear, I think, that, that, that Christianity itself is less of a potent theme for these people than than political warfare. Yeah, the weird evangelical Trump nexus axis of power there, I never quite understood how they could get behind a guy. On this issue, I'm kind of, I guess, with David French that I just don't understand how anyone who takes evangelical Protestant Christianity seriously could get behind a figure like Trump. Uh, well, I was also country. staggered that in 2016, a small majority of white Catholics supported Trump, which struck me as also kind of staggering. Uh, maybe, I mean, white Catholics have had a real tough time with Hillary Clinton. So we, where do you think we're headed, Antonio? How do we, what would you say to people? Say, how do we dig ourselves out from some of this? Now my, I think I've come to the position that the best thing that I can do personally is just to attempt to practice liberalism rather than simply 
worry about it. In, in other words, be I hate to be the change you'd like to see, which is talk to your opponents, <laughs> do not get too wrapped up in emotion, violate the tribal order, agree with some of your general political allies, disagree with them on some other points. These nuances, these little technicalities are important. Keep dialogue open and real. What else can we do, do you think? Or is, it, is, is the die cast? Yeah, I mean, the, the pessimist take is that the choice is between woke socialism or populist nationalism, mm -hmm. right? That's, in some sense, how some of the pieces are being arrayed, at least by people like AOC on the left or J.D. Vance on the right, right? And you've got sort of conscientious objectors, potentially maybe including yourself, who would be, you know, liberals in the, in, in the old school, you know, Oakshot way or classical liberals in the John Stewart Mill fashion or whatever. You know, I tend to think reality is probably going to be woke capitalism that actually takes off. You're going to see woke inflected neoliberal capitalism continue. I don't think real socialism is going to take off in a, in a serious way. I do think, you know, I've asked the same question in my own interviews. I, I was chatting with Chris Rufo yesterday, actually, about this. And, you know, it does seem, I, I think that if there's one phrase that characterizes our age, it's elite failure, right? It's, it's elite failure to handle anything. And as you're seeing with, to a degree, COVID or you know, certainly to a large degree, the Afghanistan debacle, you're seeing that the elites have been kind of caught without their clothes. And for all their sort of dismissiveness and credentials, that doesn't actually substitute for principles and wisdom and actual smarts. And so I think you, you have to rebuild an elite and you possibly have to, re, you know, rebuild institutions. So I, I think s sitting and clinging to some, you know, I often joke that like, your political position these years is defined by like what year you want to return the clock to. <laughs> and if you're a, like a trad conservative, it's 1950. And if you're an Obama neoliberal, it's like 2009. And if you're a Clintonian, it's, you know, whatever, 1998. But I think the reality is that if you do, if you hope to actually clear out some notion of what America kind of was, I guess, when we were younger and fell in love with it and waved the flag, then then it actually does come down to, you know, the little platoon, so to speak, of community and family at the local and the state level, rather than tribal and national warfare at the, at the federal level. But, you know, that's like hoping for an end to, to poverty and war. <laughs> How do you get there? I think some of it's happening with what you're doing, right? Andrew, the fact that you were, you know, I think you were probably one of the first serious names in East Coast media to like bail and come to Substack and create your own world there, uh, among many others, right? But I think that is also part of the creating a different form of elite institution that can exist independently of the sort of the Borg, the machine. So that's what for I would me focus the, on. But for me, the worry is the following, that the elites that, we, that have emerged over the last 30 to 40 to 50 years, because they've been sifted by, essentially by IQ, through SAT tests, through college tests, and taken to the big cities where the universities are, where they stay, they don't go home, they marry each other. You watch, put that through the wash cycle several generations, and they really have very little understanding of the places they were from. In fact, they've taught themselves that to think that way is to, in some ways, to be immoral. And until we kind of, the meritocracy may have created this unwanted fact that we have filtered the cognitive elite out of the center of the country, geographically, literally filtered them, and created two different countries, which are both cognitively actually slightly different, and also mutually at this point uncomprehending and very suspicious of each other's motives. And that is a, a very deep structural thing that I don't see how we 
undo. Maybe the left's attack on any kind of standards in education, getting rid of the SC, maybe that's a solution to this. Just abandon all standards so that you get elites that, that are more related to working class or middle class communities that aren't represented by high IQ individuals. Maybe that's a paradoxical way to restore some kind of unity. But if you carry on this way, I, I think the divides are just are going to deepen until they become irresolvable. Yeah, no, I think the that's another thing that obsesses me is the assortative mating and the sort of IQ gap. I mean, it, it's worth mentioning, it's worth remembering that meritocracy was a term coined as a slur in a sci-fi yeah. dystopia novel. Right? Yeah. It was as a good thing. The people, it's it's like, everyone says, oh, meritocracy. Yeah. It's like, that's not a good thing necessarily. And I, and again, it, it's meritocracy measured across one very unique dimension that again, completely bungles things when it comes to pandemics or understanding other cultures like those of Afghanistan. They, if you can't understand someone from Ohio, let me tell you, you're not gonna understand a Pashtun tribesman from Afghanistan, right? <laughs> and that's not just because you're so smart in this elevated plane eating so much whole foods that you can't deign to understand it. You're just kind of an idiot stuck in your little parochial world and you can't take your head out of your own asshole. Sorry, we're not on a public radio thing so I can say that, but that, that's what it really means, right? That, that was the criticism implied in meritocracy, that you would apply a certain intelligence and university filter that actually would not yield to good results in the real world, as we're seeing, right? That's the real criticism of meritocracy, right? The, the fact that you can do well in the SAT, I think it does indicate about certain things about your downstream consequences of life in a very analytic capitalist world. I'm not saying IQ is false. I'm just saying, I'm not sure that why that is the one parameter that should define our elites instead of what are the traditional human virtues that the Greeks spoke of, like loyalty, steadfastness, duty, et cetera. Those are also virtues that you can be rated against and that you can have a very high IQ and a very low everything else as you know, I'm the first to admit and would also diagnose among people in Silicon Valley who tend to be very enabled and high IQ, but sometimes suffer along the other virtue dimensions, right? I think that's the issue. And I don't know- That's true in other professions, yeah. elite professions as well. I mean, I remember yeah. the old newsroom, you know, the old sort of Daily Telegraph newsroom. And the truth is that reporters were there who were working class, who knew their communities, who were just able to report well. They didn't have to have degrees, but they had, and, and, and there was a variety of backgrounds. And all they wanted to do was dig up dirt on things that they knew or places they were from and, and communities that they understood. And, and now it's, and it was a cacophonous roar of the most politically incorrect barbs in which everyone learned to be resilient and take insults in some ways a kind of some form of affection. It's a very male thing too, is to, is to say, this is not, we're not putting each other down. We, we, everybody's made fun of, everybody is ridiculed, and we're a variety of people from a variety of places. And that has now been replaced by an obsession with identity diversity at the expense of life experience diversity, class diversity. And I mean, for example, I always ask, this is the question I always ask the New York Times, how many, you, you're in New York, you want your paper to represent New York City, right? How many Orthodox Jews are working at the New York, New York Times? Right. How many? How many working class Irish people are really there? And how, how many, you know, working class Italians or Puerto Ricans are working in that office? As opposed to the people who, zero. The, the, zero, <laughs> as opposed to all the people that say Latinx. Uh, and in fact, if you don't say Latinx, you don't get a promotion and someone, someone calls you a racist in the slack and then you have to be even more. That is why we end up with the newspapers we have. Uh, why you just, I just read, oh, I'm just reading another term paper from another critical theory student every fucking day. Excuse my language. It's just, it's so tightly bound to itself. And the fact that it now comes wrapped in this sense of righteousness just makes me want to wretch.
Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just fetching there. There's something also no, awful right. about the right, self-righteousness of the stuff. I mean, it's, it's beyond irritating. Um, but we go on a lot, Antonio. We've talked for a while, I know. And <laughs> we have things to do. I have a beach to go to because it's so fucking beautiful out there. And I feel it's almost a sin okay. to stay inside. Here I go again with my Catholicism. But I want to thank you for joining me. I really enjoyed this. I think we covered some pretty tough and difficult areas, uh, which we normally have difficulty in covering. And I must say, I end this buoyed by your spirit and depressed by, by the conversation in some ways because of what it says about our, our world and where it may be headed. But thank you, Antonio. No, thank you, Andrew. This has been a great conversation. A lot of fun. And uh, you'll see us all next week on the next Dishcast. Don't forget to check out The Pull Request, which is Antonio's Substack, which, I mean, I just spent the last few hours just going through it and reminding myself of all sorts of stuff. And it, it's absolutely phenomenally interesting and beautifully written, too. So I recommend that without hesitation. I also recommend this new book out called Out of Limb, which is my collected essays the last 30 years. I'm not doing that much promotion of it on here, but um, please go. Check it out. If you've been a dishhead for a while, it's got lots of memorable pieces in it, I hope. And it's not just a collection of my pieces, but a kind of weird chronological history of the last 30 years as well. So check that out too. And meantime, we will see you next week. Cheers. Aww.